This episode brought to you by Cafe Imports, Minneapolis-based importers of fine specialty green coffees, independently owned and operated since 1993. Cafe Imports has been dedicated to decreasing its impact on the earth through renewable energy, carbon neutrality, and by supporting conservational efforts in places where quality coffee is grown and also where quality coffee is consumed. Where does your coffee come from? And sponsored by Uber Creative Agency, a boutique web design development and marketing agency based in Minneapolis, Minnesota, with clients across the U.S. We don't just provide services, we deliver value. Welcome to the Lake Superior Podcast. I'm Walt Lindela. And I'm Frida Wara. We are made stronger by story, and there's no better source than the continent's largest body of fresh water, Lake Superior. So join us as we highlight the five national parks that ring this greatest of the Great Lakes, meet the people, tour the places, and learn about the projects that make these parks and body of water so remarkable. This podcast made possible with the support of the National Parks of Lake Superior Foundation and Media Brew Communications. I'm Walt Lindelow. And I'm Frida Wara. And welcome once again to the Lake Superior Podcast. Today, something very interesting, uh, Frida. We, we, we've talked about so many people associated with various things around Lake Superior. This one's a, a bit of a different one for us. Tell us what's on the what's on the docket. Well, you know what? We love to talk about the characters of Lake Superior, and let's get into the critters of Lake Superior. Yes. And there's really no one better to tell us about this really sneaky animal that we find kind of really interesting. It's ebb and flow, I guess, and uh, where it's found and when it's been found. And that is all the study from Professor John Pauley. And he's the professor of the Department of Forest and Wildlife Ecology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. All right. Well, let's uh, welcome Professor Pauley here to the program. John, hello and uh, welcome to the show. Hello to you both. Thanks for having me. So we're talking about something here, and we'll get into the specifics of it, but you are at University of Wisconsin-Madison. Uh, let's first of all talk a little bit about who you are, uh, Professor John Pauley at uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison. Tell us a little bit about yourself. How'd you end up there? Fair enough. Um, I don't think I'm, my background's going to be nearly as exciting as our discussion about uh, Martins in a little bit, but I can give you a little bit of background <laughs> on myself. Uh, I'm uh, originally from uh, Seattle, Washington, but I actually grew up most of my life here in the great state of Wisconsin. Uh, I grew up in Madison, um, and I went to school at the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point uh, for my undergrad. Uh, I went out west then, and I did my graduate degree out in Wyoming. And then I did my Ph.D. up in Alaska, mm -hmm. uh, studying American Martins up along the coast of Alaska. Um, after that Ph.D., I came back to Madison. I thought it was going to be a quick return. Uh, it's called a postdoc, which is usually just a couple of, couple of years of a job at the university. Mm -hmm. But that ultimately uh, became a professorship here for me. And so uh, my wife and my two kids and I now live it back in Wisconsin uh, in Madison, and uh, I lead a great group of researchers here uh, at the university studying 
mainly mammals and especially carnivores. Those are kind of the meat-eating mammals that we think about. Mm -hmm. Now, this is interesting because now you touched on a little bit of what you really study, and that is Martins. Now, let's first of all, before we get into why you are so fascinated with it, for our listeners that maybe aren't familiar with what a Martin is, can you please uh, describe that for us? Yeah, you know, one of the first things that I, you know, one of the first responses, rather, that I get when I tell people I study Martins, they say, oh my gosh, I love that bird. Such a beautiful purple bird. <laughs> and I say, no, no, I'm not studying that. I'm studying Martins, which are small carnivores. They're about the size of a house cat. Uh, and they live in uh, mainly coniferous or boreal forests. Uh, and they eat things like birds and small mammals. Um, they are closely related to the wolverine. That's okay. their closest uh, relative uh, is wolverine, but they're much smaller than wolverines, and they historically occurred throughout the Great Lakes region. Hmm. Okay, so what is it about them that made you say, I want to really study these, really get to know more about them? Yeah, martins are, uh, you know, fascinating critters. They they are highly efficient, highly effective predators. Uh, as I was saying, they eat a variety of different foods, and they're really effective at, at killing small stuff. Mm-hmm. But they're also really interesting because they're also vulnerable themselves to being killed by bigger things. So they exist in this really interesting space of being a highly effective killer, but also being killed effectively by other larger things, things like fishers or things like coyotes or foxes. So they exist in this kind of narrow window uh, uh, within, you know, our our forests of northern Wisconsin and Michigan and Minnesota. And how are they different than a fisher? Because in my mind, I'm trying to think about this. I don't think I've ever seen a martin. I think I might have seen a fisher. How would I know the difference? I think think you're you're probably right. Um, So fishers, you know, they're about two to five times larger than martins. They look quite similar to one another, especially if it's running by or if it's in a kind of a blurry picture. Um, Martins and fishers, you know, they they diverged evolutionarily about, you know, six to eight million years ago. So a while back, they kind of split off in their own trajectories, um, but they nevertheless look quite a bit similar, um, except for in their body size, that fishers really are, are much larger. So a, a martin is about, oh, one kilogram or eight pounds, and fishers will be any time, anywhere two to five times larger than that. So, so body size is a big difference. And fishers and martins, because they eat very similar things and they use very similar habitats, they're what we call close competitors, right? That they they eat and use the same stuff. And when you have a competitor, the more of the competitor, the worse it is for you, right? That means there's right. less stuff for you. And so that ultimately means that uh, martins and fishers engage in a lot of competition. And because fishers are bigger, they're dominant. And what that often then manifests itself as is that fishers simply kill martins when they encounter them. Mm-hmm. So it's it's certainly not a lovey-dovey relationship between fishers and martins. Mm-hmm. It's one really of, you know, active competition between the two with the fishers typically winning just because they're that much larger. No, go ahead. I just I have a question about this now. You're describing these two uh, these two animals, and they obviously have a role in the ecosystem around the Great Lakes, especially around Lake Superior. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Maybe their history in the region, history in Wisconsin, or at least around the uh, Lake Superior area. 
so Martins and Fishers have, you know, they have this shared evolutionary history that I just told you about, but they also have kind of a shared contemporary history in our region. Um, and that is to say, you know, in the early you know 20th century, uh, Martins and Fishers were driven to extirpation regionally in places like Wisconsin and Michigan. Uh, they did hold on in Minnesota, and that, that's a very common history mm-hmm. for many of our forest carnivores, right? Many of these species that were fur bearers, they're trapped for fur, and they're really linked in to um, older, structurally complex forests that when these forests were largely logged, and when trapping was mostly unregulated, we lost a lot of these species from, from, our, from our forests. Um, Fishers and Martins did kind of hold on to parts of Minnesota, but they were largely gone from uh, Wisconsin and the UP. In the 1950s and 60s, that larger body Fisher was being reintroduced, and, and actually the goal to reintroduce fishers was to control porcupine populations. Oh. Uh, porcupines sometimes scar trees sure, yeah. and are considered a nuisance. I personally love porcupines. That's another critter I study. Uh, but fishers are one of the few predators that have figured out how to effectively kill porcupines. Uh, mm. They can do it without getting quilled. You know, when our dog gets into a porcupine, right. it gets quilled. Fishers have this quill avoidance behavior where they're able to kill porcupines by biting the face of the porcupine oh, and then that animal yeah nasty right the animal <laughs> then bleeds out and they flip it over on its back and they kind of eat it like a bread bowl from the soft <laughs> belly wow. to the back of the quills so have they you were watched reduced. this john have uh, you seen well, this happen no, but if you spend a lot of time in our, our forest, um, you might come upon a porcupine cape, mm-hmm. and that's a, that's a telltale sign of a yep. fisher yeah. kill. And, and by that, I mean you'll just kind of see this cape of quills, yeah. you know, a skin yep. cape of yep. quills. And if you ever see that in the woods, that tells you that a fisher came and did just, oh. what, I, just what I described. So we've, um, we've, we've got the fishers and the martins, and they're kind of in the same sort of area, and they're sort of – they are competitive competing with each other and it sounds to me like you know it seems like it could go very easily in the fishers way because they're just they're bigger right but there's been a few things yeah You're precisely right. No, no, no. That's exactly where I was going, which is we had the Fisher reintroduction in the 1950s and 60s, right? And we patted ourselves on the back on a successful reintroduction of Fishers and a well-deserved successful reintroduction of Fishers back to Wisconsin and Minnesota. We had success with that. So then we said, well, let's try this for Martin. So uh, there was an initial attempt in the late 50s to the Apostle Islands, which failed. But then there was a real concerted effort in the 1970s and 80s and again in the 1980s into the 1990s, and then again in the early 2000s. And there's been this this push, this continued press to try and get Martins to take hold back in their historic range here in Wisconsin and Michigan. But, but part of the problem is, is that we established this really healthy, large population of fishers first. And so we introduced the bigger, scarier competitor right. to right. the landscape, and we yeah. filled all that space with this bigger you know, competitive, dominant species. And then we tried to put Martins right on top of that, tried to superimpose them on top of that. 
And by having fissures kind of that sequence, maybe a little out of order, it created a slightly more complicated scenario to recover martens regionally. We're talking with Professor John Pauley. He is with the Department of Forest and Wildlife Ecology at University of Wisconsin-Madison about martens. Why was this being done? These things that you're describing, these reintroductions, why was it important to do these efforts? Well, uh, you know, uh, let's, you know, martens are and fishers are ecologically, you know, important species of our communities. I think that we have a tendency, uh, I do, you know, to focus on an individual species and mm-hmm. take them out of that community of organisms in which they uh, interact with. And I think we need to kind of place these species back in these uh, communities and these ecosystems. And martens and fishers are important predators. They consume and potentially regulate small mammal populations, things like mice and voles and shrews. Uh, martens and fishers are also really generalists in their diets. So they eat not just meat, but they eat other stuff. And one of the, some of those other things that they consume are like berries. And by consuming berries, they actually help to disperse seeds of those berries, too. So they actually can benefit um, production of plants, especially um, fruiting uh, plants like blueberries and raspberries and such. Um, They're they're also, in some parts of their range, economically relevant, that they're trapped for their fur, and there's a price for that. And so there's an economic uh, benefit from having these species present. And they're also culturally important. Um, Martins, for example, are a clan animal of the Ojibwe people, and they have cultural significance uh, to, to many different groups. So, so really, you know, for, for a variety of reasons, um, ecologists and conservation biologists, wildlife managers have been really interested in restoring uh, the functional return of species like martens and fishers. So, John, when you're studying them, and I'm guessing you're covering most of the Great Lakes region, but you've really found a good research area at the Apostles? Yeah, that's a great question. So we do. We, we've been working on martin especially martin populations in Minnesota and northern Wisconsin, the UP, Apostle Islands, Isle Royal. Uh, we've been studying these populations in all these different places. And we've really realized that in the Upper Great Lakes region, uh, we have this kind of recovery network. Uh, and that is just that there are these kind of individual populations of martens scattered across these areas, mm-hmm. but they're also connected by dispersal, right? Individuals kind of migrating from one subpopulation to the other. And so studying the whole constellation is really important to understand where these populations are going. And and the Apostle Islands are one uh, really important um, kind of node within this recovery network. And they have a really interesting history on the Apostle Islands. Uh, like I said, the first reintroduction effort back in the 50s of martens back to the region occurred on the Apostle Islands. They actually grabbed animals from Colorado, and they brought them back to Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. At that time, they didn't know they were actually introducing the wrong species of martens, oh, uh, but they grabbed what was called the Pacific Martin out of the Rocky Mountains and brought it over, and it might have been a blessing in disguise that that reintroduction didn't take, so we didn't reintroduce the wrong species. Right. That reintroduction effort didn't take off, um, but then they were largely absent. And, you know, around 2010, uh, there were documentation of uh, Martins showing back up on the Apostle Islands. And the question, you know, then became, how did they get there? When did they get there? 
you know, what's their ultimate role in this recovery network that I just described? Uh, working closely with a graduate student, his name's Matt Smith, uh, we kind of pieced together that the Apostle Islands were recently colonized, and they were recently colonized from individuals in the Wisconsin-Michigan area, and that this population really took off and has been doing quite well. Lots of martins on these very small islands, very small islands for a martin, and so they're reaching really high densities, and so much so that we're actually seeing individuals dispersing from the islands back to the mainland okay. and contributing individuals back to the mainland of, of Wisconsin, which is really interesting. And we're talking with uh, John Pauley. He's a professor at the Department of Forest and Wildlife Ecology at the University of Madison, Wisconsin, or Wisconsin-Madison. Uh, you know, John, I've got to ask you this. You're talking about this kind of research and things that you're doing. Tell us a little bit about what it is is you are doing to research this, to document these areas of populations, those recoveries? What are you doing out there in the field? Yeah, that's that's a great question. So, you know, um, I, I, I have a, a wood shop at home, right? And I always say that there's the right tool for the job, and you want to have a diverse toolbox when you try and start building something. And that kind of goes for research, too, especially in wildlife ecology, that, you know, we really bring a diverse toolbox of approaches to studying these populations. And so we do things like um, radio collar animals, put GPS devices on them where we can track them and see where they're going, what they're doing. Uh, we can analyze what they're eating uh, by collecting things like scat, which I know is not the most appealing, but the <laughs> scat from the animal. It's important. Or even collect. Go ahead. I said it's important. That is important. That's an important research tool because not only you track where they've, no pun intended, gone, but what they're doing, you know, what they're eating, you know. I mean, they're they're in the area. Yeah. Well, that's her DNA, too. Yeah, that's... that's, Because it's going to match the radio collar that you have. You'll be able to know. Yeah. Yeah. So in addition to things like tracking them or looking at these, you know, the samples that are left in the field, we also use things like cameras to track where they are. And then finally, just like you were saying, Frida, is that we, I run a, a, what's called a non-invasive genetics lab here at UW. And that is, is that from samples like SCAD, but also through things like shed fur, we can put out these little devices into the forest that all they do is have brushes on them. And a Martin will come by and leave a little bit of hair on this brush. And we can collect those samples, bring them back to my laboratory. We can extract the DNA from them. And from that extracted DNA, we can actually um, amplify um, different markers for individuals, and we can actually identify individuals based on that genetic makeup. And by doing this non-invasive genetics, we can do long-term monitoring across the region. And that's something that we've been doing, oh, man, for over a decade now, which is crazy for me to say, <laughs> uh, that we've been sampling and tracking this population using this non-invasive genetic approach. And, and those non-invasive genetic approaches can tell us how many individuals are there, where are these individuals, how related are these individuals, what individuals are actually producing offspring, because we can do things like parentage um, tests, right, to identify who's mom and who's dad within the population. And by using those techniques, just as a quick example, because we've talked about the Apostle Islands, and by monitoring for a long time period, we are actually able to identify the individual that colonized from 
uh, eastern Wisconsin, right on the border with Michigan, that actually went up and colonized the Apostle Islands. We, we kind of have identified the eve to the population on the Apostle Islands because we've been monitoring these individuals non-invasively with genetic-based approaches. Holy wah. <laughs> so, so, and first of all, he got me way back there when I was just thinking about what it takes to put a radio collar on a Martin. Yeah, you know, exactly. I mean, first of all, trapping them, and then I bet they're kind of feisty, so you're <laughs> anesthetizing them somehow. But more than anything, you've got, is, is an average Martin lifespan about eight years? So, yeah, that's about right. Okay, yeah, so, so yep. wow. I mean... How many do they have litters? I don't know if that's the name that you would use. They do. Okay. Yeah. So, how many litters would a female have in a lifespan of eight years? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you're exactly right. Because of that place that they sit within the community, right? Being effective killers, but also being effectively killed by other things, they do have quite a bit of personality. And that's something I do <laughs> like quite a bit about Martins. Um, a female, they have a really interesting reproductive cycle. They, they're what we call a slow life history. And that is to say they take some time to reach maturity to successfully reproduce. And then they only have one litter per year. And those litters are often typically quite small. And that, that, that in part is the, you know, quote unquote problem or the conservation problem that we face with species, species with really slow life histories that if you take a while to get old enough to reproduce, and then when you do reproduce, it's only once a year, and when you do reproduce, your litters aren't very large, that means that recovery can just simply take quite a bit of time, Sure. right? We can contrast that with other species that have like fast life histories, mm -hmm. right? That we think of snowshoe hares, another critter I study here in Wisconsin, and snowshoe hares can have four litters in a year, mm -hmm. in a single year. They can mm -hmm. bang out four litters, and those litters can be of variable sizes. And so when we start thinking about recovering species that have these slow reproductive rates, it can take some time, uh, even even under ideal scenarios. Is there uh, anything to do with like the geography of the apostles uh, and it's making a recovery, the Martin making a recovery there? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Um Historically, conservation biologists, and for good reason, have viewed island systems as vulnerable, right? They're vulnerable in the sense that they're small and they're constrained, so that means that they don't often feature large population sizes. And that means when you're looking at smaller population sizes to begin with, they're simply just more vulnerable to going locally extinct because there's just not a lot of individuals. If you have a really bad year, mm -hmm. maybe everybody in that very small population dies. And so that's how we've historically viewed islands and, and for very good reason. But islands, because of their geography, also have this kind of duality associated with them. And, and the Apostle Islands are an ex excellent example of that. By being a protected island, they're actually insulated from what's going on on the mainland. So the Apostle Islands have been under protection. Uh, much of it is a wilderness area, and therefore they're not subject to um, industrial logging. And therefore the forests that occur on the Apostle Islands are quite different than on the mainland. Mm -hmm. but, but furthermore, because they're islands, there's actually a filter that prevents everything from getting out there. And for something like a Martin, that's a really good deal. That is to say, 
Fishers aren't particularly abundant. There aren't a whole group of other carnivores out there that are looking to kill martens. Right. So it's it's somewhat of an insulated community. So that the habitat is different. The community is different. There's less competitors that martens have to face. And then on top of that, we don't have really high deer densities out on the Apostle Islands. And, and deer love to eat things like you uh, or mountain maple or these other things that create really complex forests, forests that have a lot of structure, a lot of stuff to them. And maybe the three of us wouldn't like to go walk through a forest filled with you, you know, because we're just kind of walking through all this brush. But for something like a marten, it's ideal habitat because now not only are there fewer competitors, but there's more cover for them to be able to hide and escape predation. But also that cover also provides really good habitat for the prey that they eat, things like voles and mice. So by being on the island then, they're kind of insulated. They're kind of in this little refuge where they don't have this really intense deer herbivory. They which then leads to this habitat quality. They don't have all these competitors. They do have all this prey. And so the Apostle Islands and islands in general in these temperate systems can potentially act as a little bit of a refuge for them where they can do quite well. So, John, there's 21 islands at the Apostles. Can you share how many of those 21 have a pretty viable Martin population? Well, um, I, you know, I, I don't know what I can say in terms of viability. Um, you know, we've studied the Martin populations on a number of those islands, and a lot of our work uh, focused on what we kind of call those those middle islands, like Stockton and Cat, Manitou, Otter, and those populations are pretty high in terms of their densities. You know, for example, in uh, our recent study out there, we identified 43 unique individuals just on a handful of islands, which is a really high density mm-hmm. uh, for martens. And that really high density then does suggest that that habitat quality is really, really high uh, to be able to sustain such high densities um, of martens on these really, really kind of constrained islands in terms of size. But you also are studying martens at Isle Royale. And that's got to be a whole different ball game because there you've got basically one big island or bigger island. There's many other, the smallers, but mm-hmm. you've got a wolf population. And I would imagine that a Martin's a real tasty morsel to a wolf. <laughs> yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. We also work on the Isle Royal uh, and we work on the Western end of Isle Royal, kind of out of the Windigo area. And, um, Martins, um, it, it's a it's a, a very different system. Uh, on one hand, just like you said, uh, wolves were historically, you know, rather rare, and then the recent reintroduction, uh, they brought you know wolves back to much higher densities. Um, and they also have a really big population of moose out on that island as well. And so the forest structure is much different because we have this big herbivore uh, that does move through the island, that does chew on a lot of this um, structure that I was talking about, you know, which is really different than the Apostle Islands. Apostle Islands, many of the islands are really thick, really hard to move through, whereas, you know, much of Isle Royal is, is much easier to move through. Now, what's interesting about the return of the wolf is that while bigger stuff loves to chew on martens and kill them, um, actually the greatest 
expected competition occurs between species that are different in body size, but not too different in body size. Mm, okay. So things like foxes or fishers with martens, you would expect a lot of competition. And it's really kind of intuitive. Um, that is to say, if you're the same size as your competitor, you're unlikely going to want to get into a fight with that individual because you're the same size. You don't know who's going to win. And by winning, I mean living. And by losing, I mean dying. (laughs) And so if you're the same size, you avoid that interaction. If you're really, 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 really different, you actually don't really compete with one another because you're using just such different resources. And so if you're really different, like a, like a wolf to a marten, we don't expect a lot of competition between those two. But it's when they're slightly different, when you're close enough in body size that you need the same stuff, but you're different enough that there's going to be a clear winner, like between something like a fisher and a marten or a fox and a marten. And so then indirectly then, by having wolves present, they may mediate those interactions. By that I'm saying that they might pick on foxes, foxes pick on martens, and therefore as a consequence, foxes are indirectly kind of looking out for martens mm, okay. because they're yeah. suppressing the other critter right. that's going to be picking on martens. I see. It's very very interesting. We're talking with uh, Professor John Pauley today, who is with the Department of Forest and Wildlife Ecology, University of Wisconsin-Madison, about martens out there in uh, the areas around Lake Superior. Uh, you know, John, it's been interesting talking to you here. We've had about almost a half an hour fly by here without even thinking about it. You've got a lot of passion about this. This is something that you're obviously truly interested in. If people listening here to the podcast today want to find out more about your research, your colleagues' research, the stuff that you are coordinating, uh, what is a good way for them to find out more? Yeah, sure. Um, we we do have a uh, we do have a web page that has some information on our work. Uh, it's pauli.russell.wisc.edu. Um, we also, you know, routinely uh, publish papers and post them, both pu- public and peer-reviewed papers that uh, outline a lot of the work that we do. Yeah, it's real interesting because whenever, like Frida and I, we've been just kind of reacting through this here in the studio, and it's it's your your interest in this really comes across, which we've had a chance through this podcast to talk to people around the lake like yourself with this kind of thing. And it's like we always like to give someone like you an opportunity to maybe add something to wrap up with because there's so much more that could be going in there. But what, what do you want our listeners to take away with this work that you're looking at things like a Martin in, in the area around? Lake Superior. Yeah, I would say maybe just two two ideas to consider. Uh, one is we've been talking, you know, generally about the work that uh, I've been I've been I've been leading, but that but, but that's really with a, a broad partnership of people, uh, and I would say that involves people like you know exceptional graduate students that I mentor here at UW Madison, mm-hmm. uh, folks at the Wisconsin DNR, folks at the Minnesota DNR, folks at the Michigan DNR, folks at Isle Royale National Park and Apostle Islands. Um, as well as the U.S. Forest Service, as well as places like the Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission or Red Cliff uh, or Bad River, uh, Band of Ojibwe. You know, these are, these are a, a really a partnership across many different invested, interested, eager people to help understand these species um, and, their, and, and aid in their recovery. So I, I'd really say 
it's the old saying, many hands make light work, you know, that this is really a broad partnership across a lot of different people. And the second I would say is, is that I think that Martins are one of these species. We kind of started the podcast by joking around that every time I say I study Martins, people say I love that bird. Mm-hmm. Um, that Martins are really a fascinating critter. I mean, they really are. They're, they're an important uh, member of these ecosystems. They're something that regionally has was abundant and common, uh, but but not anymore. And they face a lot of pressures. And just to kind of highlight and bring to attention this this really interesting species, a, a state endangered species in Wisconsin, that you know doesn't necessarily always get its due. So I, I really appreciate you guys doing this podcast on Martins uh, to kind of get the word out. Well, it's on this been, you know I would tell you it's been interesting talking with you, uh, John, because you've made it very interesting, which I'm sure works very well with motivating the students and your your colleagues and everything because I guess like for someone like me, I mean, I've grown up on the, I've lived on Lake Superior here in Marquette for over 30 years. I grew up on Portage Lake in the Keweenaw Peninsula of the UP. So I've been around water and been around a lot of wildlife for a long time, but I never really had the opportunity to even give this kind of attention to one because it just wasn't something that was in my wheelhouse. And you've really shared some great info with us today. This has been wonderful. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for the great questions today, too. <laughs> yeah, and Frida and I were just sitting here. We're just like, it's been, there's been a lot of smiles as we're looking at you because we've both just really learned something today, and that's what it's about. Absolutely. Wonderful. John, do you think we will likely see a Martin? I mean, where do we have to go? And do we have to sit and just wait? Yeah, no, Martins are peculiar that way. Um, you know, I can probably count on two hands the number of time I've seen a Martin in the in the woods when I wasn't tracking or trapping them, right? Yeah. Uh, certainly seen them a bunch more than that, but just being outside, um, they are cryptic. Um, and we have two things going against us. One is, you know, what I tell wildlife students here at UW undergrads all the time is, uh, organisms have evolved not to be seen, and that's certainly true for martins, right? That they they don't necessarily want to be seen by us. Uh, and secondly, in in many parts of their range, they're really rare. So on top of that, they're just not very common around here anymore. Um, the best places to find martins are really in those you know complex forests, those forests that have a lot of structure to them, older forests, more coniferous forests. Those are the places that you're most likely to see them, but they're also, those forests are the hardest places to see stuff <laughs> because they're just so thick. Um, so it does. It does take time. It, it can take a while until you see your first martin running freely in the woods. Professor John Pauley with us today on the podcast. He is a professor with the Department of Forest and Wildlife Ecology at University of Wisconsin-Madison. John, it's been a pleasure having you on today, and thanks for all of your insight. Thank you very much for having me. Professor John Pauley from the Department of Forest and Wildlife Ecology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. You know, Frida, that was just one of those where it's like... I, I, 
I, I spent in this last half hour here just learning a lot and to think that, you know, the problem, they're not the problem, but probably the most prominent thing that I learned out of this whole conversation is I'm a generalist when it comes to my eating styles too. Just like <laughs> but no, this seriously, this was really just, I mean, these are these, you know, as he calls them critters out there along the lake or out, you know, in that area and on the islands and everything. Just fascinating. And to know like the slow life histories, yep. all of these aspects of them, you know, the females and how it, how he's, they're studying so in-depthly at all of this mm-hmm. components that are going to bring that recovery. You know what? Well, I, we just have to wrap this up because I got to go get on my skis and I'm going to go out in the woods <laughs> and I'm going to start looking. I got to find out what a Martin track is going to look like. You're going to, you're going to go find a Martin. Yes, because you know. Winter is it. There's no anonymity in the woods. They're leaving tracks out there. So I'm going to go find some. Well, we appreciate you guys jumping in with us today on the podcast. And again, if you have any ideas for one, you can find the, uh, the national parks of Lake Superior foundation through their website and their information. They'll pass those on to us. And uh, we'll be going into another season here very quickly with, uh, you know, the seasons changing and all of that. And just an interesting chat about some of the, uh, the critters around the big lake today. That's that's going to do it for us. I'm Walt Lindela. I'm Frida Wara. Thanks so much for listening. The National Parks of Lake Superior Foundation, NPLSF, is the only official nonprofit 501c3 fundraising partner of the National Park Service for all five U.S. national park sites on Lake Superior. To learn more about NPLSF projects and programs, you can visit the website at nplsf.org or friend them on Facebook. I'm Frida Wara. And I'm Walt Lindela. Thanks for listening to the Lake Superior Podcast. This podcast made possible with the support of the National Parks of Lake Superior Foundation and Media Brew Communications. This episode brought to you by Cafe Imports, Minneapolis-based importers of fine specialty green coffees, independently owned and operated since 1993. Cafe Imports has been dedicated to decreasing its impact on the earth through renewable energy, carbon neutrality, and by supporting conservational efforts in places where quality coffee is grown and also where quality coffee is consumed. Where does your coffee come from? And sponsored by Uber Creative Agency, a boutique web design development and marketing agency based in Minneapolis, Minnesota, with clients across the U.S. We don't just provide services, we deliver value.